Convicted and Convinced, a message from God's Word for you. And now, here's Dr. Lloyd Willis with today's lesson. Good morning, Sabbath School members. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we ask you to guide us in our study today as we think and talk about prophecy. We thank you for this gift. Bless us in understanding it. In Jesus' name, amen. What is a prophet? That's a good question. For many people, it's just, uh, there is no such thing as a prophet. Uh, the, dif- the dictionaries would say something like, uh, a prophet or a prophecy, they concern where a god, a deity, speaks to a person and gives them a message. Uh, actually, the basic words uh, coming from the uh, our word prophecy comes from two Greek words, pro, for, and then phimi, the verb to speak. So one who speaks for somebody else and uh, is therefore an instrument chosen by God. And that's how we would define it here. And notice that God does the choosing of a prophet. It's not hereditary. The priest was a hereditary position. They had to be of the descendants of uh, Levi, and uh, particularly the, the priests had to be descendants of Aaron, the family of Aaron within the tribe of Levi. So uh, in the Old Testament, the word prophet is translated from the word navi, which means a prophet, and seems to derive from the idea of one who is called called to speak, obviously. Again and again, Jeremiah, uh, if you look in almost any chapter, uh, chapter 7 is a good example. It begins by saying, uh, the word, this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. So that's how the Bible defines a prophet, one who speaks for the Lord and the Lord speaks to him, gives him a message. Uh, It's interesting that there's a sort of a little exception here. In the case of Moses, if you look at Exodus 4, 14 to 16, it indicates that Moses stood in the place of God. God told him, "You, you represent me to Pharaoh and you represent me to the people. So Aaron will be your prophet. You speak and give him my message and Aaron then will be your prophet. He will speak for you. Quite interesting. And uh, in Exodus chapter 7, 1, it uh, makes it even more specific. So uh, the work of the priest, just in contrast, was to instruct and to especially lead out in worship and in ritual, making sacrifices, for example. That's the priest. So it did involve teaching, but it was also uh, very worship-oriented. In the case of a prophet, the prophet is to speak for the, for the Lord, and he had three tasks. And actually, there were prophets who worked as oral prophets, and there were some who, who spoke and wrote. Uh, in the oral case, you have men like uh, Micaiah, and Elijah, and Elisha, and Gad, and Nathan, although they did write, but we don't have their, their recorded works. There's also ladies, Deborah and Huldah, 
and the daughters of Philip in the New Testament. So they had an oral task. They may have done some writing, but it's, it's not part of what has been preserved for us. The others, of course, are the written prophets, and that's what our Old Testament includes. About a third of the Old Testament is classified as prophecy to the Hebrew people. Very interesting because uh, there are uh, books like Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, and First and Second Kings, which are classified as prophecy, former prophets, because they talk about prophets, contain details about prophets, and are written with a kind of a prophetic point of view. And then you have the regular prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve, the Twelve Minor Prophets. Daniel is in a special category. He's both a prophet and a statesman and so forth. So he's, he's put in a separate group altogether. So what are the three tasks that a prophet was given? We need to understand these tasks because it was not just to predict the future. Here are their three main tasks. First of all, to promote true religion, especially in Old Testament times, in terms of the covenant. They were to, uh, to promote a people who are walking with the Lord in a covenant relationship and also to give them instruction that would help them to remain in that relationship. Secondly, to be a watch person, a watchman, if you like, or a watch person. That is, to be very responsible for the nation, and that concerned the kings, once they were kings, but also uh, uh, concerning individuals at times, but uh, to be a watchman over the nation, both spiritually and politically, especially in, especially in the case of Isaiah. Uh, as a member of the royal family, we understand it. We think that he was a prince. Isaiah worked very closely, especially with the prophet Hezekiah, with the king Hezekiah. And when the king was in trouble with the Assyrians, he went to Isaiah, Isaiah went to the Lord and came back with the assurance that God was going to care for it. So he was a watchman over the nation to keep them true to God spiritually, but also to guide them even in political aspects. That also included giving warnings and encouragement. Warnings when the nation was getting involved in idolatry and encouragement uh, on various occasions. So, first of all, to promote true religion, faithfulness and the covenant. Second, to be watchmen or watchwomen over the nation, both politically and spiritually. And thirdly, to predict future events. That's the one that we usually emphasize, prediction or a prophet. But in fact, that's only part of the work of a prophet, and there were some who probably did not make predictions as such. Moses is regarded as a prophet, but most of his work was in leadership and guidance of the people. So to predict future events, what kind of events? Um, that depended. Judgments, of course, were very, very frequently the case. Uh, messages of of deliverance, encouragement in that way, messages of, of salvation that God was with them and had uh, was going to lead them, but in particular, also an emphasis upon the Messiah, the coming of the Messiah and his kingdom. So uh, 
it's true that most people uh, don't really believe in prophets or prophecy. They don't believe that it can happen. Uh, we mentioned in higher criticism, they say no prophecies, no miracles, no divine interventions. So those who, on that path are not interested in prophecy as such. Uh, most people who do think that there are prophets and prophecy around uh, think in terms of somebody like uh, Jean Dixon. A few years ago, she uh, made many predictions and she was right some of the time. About five-eighths of the time somebody worked out. Uh, I believe she predicted the, uh, the death of John F. Kennedy and so on. But the problem is 50-60% uh, is not good enough. We expect 100% accuracy if a prophet is a true prophet. And that's the Bible standard. In Jeremiah 28 and verse 9, it basically says, if he's a true prophet, his words will come true. If they don't, you can disregard him. And back in Deuteronomy 18.22, essentially the same thing. A true prophet will speak and his word is reliable. That doesn't mean that there's not such a thing as a conditional prophecy. Uh, Jonah predicted that Nineveh was going to be overthrown in 48 and destroyed. But uh, there is such a thing in the Bible as conditional prophecy because if the personal response of an individual is concerned or a nation is concerned, the prophecy can be changed. And that's what happened to the Assyrians. They were not destroyed because of their repentance. So conditional prophecy is only where some human response makes it so that uh, one choice goes, uh, the Lord gives his uh, change of mind because they have changed their mind, put it that way. Um, those who, who say there's no such thing as prophecy and miracles and divine interventions, that is for them a presupposition. Our presuppositions from a biblical point of view are quite different. We say there is a God who loves us. He reveals himself to us through prophets and through uh, scripture and through the Holy Spirit. And another presupposition, he knows the future based on Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, for example, where it says that God, well, God himself speaking, says that uh, he knows the future and can tell in advance. So sometimes God chooses to tell us of future events. So let's face the basic question now. How, how are we to interpret prophecy? these prophecies that have been left to us, that we've inherited. Somebody has said, prophecy is history written in advance. And likewise, history is the unfolding of prophecy. Do you like that? I, I think that they are true, but maybe it's not quite adequate because it's more than that. It doesn't take into account the fact that, that God doesn't predetermine. He gives the, the choice to us. In, in so many occasions. So, uh, okay, prophecy is history written in advance, but not all history is written in advance, and not all prophecy concerns history. 
but it is within a historical framework. So that's the first point I would make, as it gives in the quarterly, that historicism is an approach to prophecy which has a long history. In the Protestant Reformation, the historical approach was used. We are in a stream of time, and God has a program, and he's working towards a conclusion. Uh, somebody wrote a book, I forget who wrote it now, but uh, I think it was called Christ and Time. And it pinpointed that the cross is at the center of time because everything before it was leading to it and everything is a consequence after it, uh, leading to, of course, the next great point, the second coming of Christ, the advent. So the prophecies are given within a historical context and are dealing with the progress of time and of God's plan. So remember that. Daniel 2 brings that out so clearly. The fact that, yes, you, O Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold, but after you, he wanted to live forever, but after you will be another kingdom. And it's named as you go on through the book of Daniel that the next will be the Medo-Persians and then the Greeks. We find that in uh, uh, Daniel 8, 20 and 21, after it's progressed past Babylon, then Medo-Persia, and the next will be Greece. And so uh, uh, after that would be Rome, but Rome is not named, only its characteristics are given. So another very important factor in interpreting prophecy is that where there is time in the prophecy, that should be understood as symbolic. Not in the case of that literal historical experience with Daniel and the Assyrians, I'm sorry, uh, Jonah and the Assyrians, but in terms of uh, where a long time prophecy is given, after so many years this will happen, then a day is used as a symbol for a year. Numbers 14.34 has 40 days representing 40 years. Ezekiel 4.6 has a day standing for a year. But there are other uh, bases for this uh, year-day principle, day-year principle, uh, mentioned in the quarterly. Uh, we're dealing with symbolic beasts and horns in Daniel and in some of Revelation. And uh, they are obviously not uh, talking about uh, literal um, days. They are not talking about literal beasts. The beasts are symbols. So if the beasts and the horns are symbolic, so the time would be suggested to be symbolic too. So how do we interpret it? Well, that day for a year principle stands out. Uh, when we're dealing with events and kingdoms stretching over long periods of time, over many centuries, a day representing a year then fits very, very appropriately. Uh, there are also some very unusual expressions used, and that again would indicate uh, symbolism rather than literal days. In uh, Daniel 8.14, 2,300 evening mornings, not 2,300 days. That's how we've translated because that's what it means. But they are not ordinary evenings and mornings. They are 2,300 symbolic days. So uh, when you follow from Daniel 8 into Daniel 9, you have there the 70-week prophecy 
And in the 70-week prophecy, 70 weeks would be 490 days. So you have a 490-year period symbolized by that time period. And it, it gives the details there how that the, uh, the decree would go forth. Daniel chapter 9, verse, uh, let me see, verse 24. Seventy-sevens, which is the NIV, are decreed for your people. So there's a period of probation, if you like, for the Jewish nation to see if they really would fulfill God's plan for them. And uh, that 70-week period, 77s it has here, 70 weeks, 490 days would represent 490 years. And the event is when the decree goes forth, that's in verse 25, the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one. Anointed means uh, anointed, baptized. The name Messiah is the anointed one. So until the coming of the Messiah. And it says that the sacrifice of, of Christ would take place in the middle of the final year. So if we go from from 457 BC, when the decree went forth, uh, I was just reading about it, how that this was the first time that Jews had been given real independence under the overall jurisdiction of the Persians, 457 BC with that decree. And 490 years later would take us over into AD time, and so that would be 34 AD. You have to adjust for the one uh, for the fact that there is no um, zero year. And so you have to add one on. So it goes to 26, no, 20, uh, I'm sorry, 33, no, 34 AD. So from uh, 457 BC to 34 AD. But then it tells us here in this passage, 9 verse 27, that the sacrifice of Christ would take place in the middle of the last week. So in the middle of this week, which would be about three and a half years earlier than AD 34, you would have the sacrifice. And of course, the Messiah comes after the 69 weeks. So that's in AD 27. So the, the baptism of Jesus, AD 27, his crucifixion about AD 31. And this doesn't make sense if you say that these are just literal days, uh, 490 days equals 490 years. Other denominations have interpreted this basically the same way, locating AD 27 as the time of the baptism of Jesus. But strangely, they then go on, and they, there's no precedent for this anywhere else. They say the last week, the last seven years, that goes way down to the end of time. And the last three and a half years and the last seven years are significant in their understanding. As I said, there's no precedent for that. So, uh, uh, okay, we've got to move quickly. Notice especially the prophecies of Daniel, where you have Daniel 2, a broad but very specific program of kingdoms, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, chaos and division, like the, the toes, and then the kingdom of Christ. Chapter 8, you have... Um, well, no, chapter 7 first, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and then uh, the second stage of Rome, Rome papal, is the, is the next domination. And then, at least the judgment, Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, and then 
the deliverance of God's of God's people in the period after the judgment. Daniel 8, it's a principle of repetition and enlargement. It's Daniel 2, now Daniel 7, now Daniel 8, giving more focus. Uh, now Babylon is gone, and it's Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, and then apostasy and persecution. And then the judgment, Daniel 8, 14, 2,300 days. And as it points out in the quarterly, uh, the end of one of the periods comes to uh, 1798. That's the end of the, of the period of domination. And then 2,300 days takes us to 1844. So the judgment follows after this period of persecutions on, in, in each of these. Just, uh, uh, all right, a few things I just want to, to emphasize before we finish. Scriptures do interpret scriptures. The year-day principle that we've just been talking about. The historical sequences in Daniel 2 and 7 and 8 and 10 to 12. The time parallels are repeated. The uh, 1260 days are mentioned in uh, two places in the New Testament, in Revelation 12. The three and a half times or three and a half years are mentioned in a number of places. And 42 months is mentioned in another. So these are parallels. And if you see that the same circumstances apply, so you can go from Daniel into Revelation, seeing that this is the program that God is working on. Uh, one warning, be cautious about unfulfilled prophecy. Don't want to do what Jesus warned against. He says, I've told you now before it happens, so that when it happens, you will believe. These prophecies are for our benefit. But the over and most important aspect, I believe, is the confidence we can have that God knows and God is in control. He spends major time in clarifying his promises to us. Again and again, thousands of promises in the Bible. Promises are sort of mini prophecies in a sense because we know that what God says he will do. So study his promises. Study the long-term prophecies like Matthew 24 and 2 Timothy 3, religious conditions in the last days. But don't neglect these long-time prophecies as well and the events that they bring. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your care for us, that you have made deliberate focus on times and events so that we can know where we are and know that you are leading and leading in our lives personally. We pray that you will do this for us this day and each day. In Jesus' name, amen. This podcast is a service of the University Parkway Seventh-day Adventist Church in Pensacola, Florida. Our weekly podcasts are recorded every Saturday morning. Bible study begins at 9.30. The sermon begins at 11. You are invited to join us. We live stream the 11 o'clock service. You can catch that broadcast at our website, universitypkwy.org, or at Livestream. A library of previous messages is available on our YouTube channel and on our website. Thank you for listening.